Hello, this is Professor Kozlowski, and today we are talking about Assassin's Creed. Why are we talking about Assassin's Creed is another matter entirely. Um, so, I have a lot of thoughts about the Assassin's Creed franchise, and I have had a lot of thoughts about the Assassin's Creed franchise for years. Like, back when I was doing my master's at Boston College back in 2011, I would frequently get very worked up about the Assassin's Creed franchise with my friends. Like, I'm pretty sure most of the people who knew me when I was at Boston College can attest to the fact that I ranted to them for an extended period time of time about the Assassin's Creed franchise at one point or another. And that was back in 2011. Like, 11 years later, the franchise has produced easily twice as many properties and a whole bunch of other drama and I have kept up kind of um, and I have if anything even more thoughts about the franchise so it was really kind of just a matter of time until I like started talking about it on the internet now that you know talking about things on the internet is a thing that I do um, so let's start with just why the the what and what's going on with this whole thing. First off, let me stress, this is going to be really off the cuff. Um, I don't have, like, a specific actual plan for what we're doing with this going forward, um, besides the fact that today we are going to talk about Assassin's Creed. Um, we will probably talk about other Assassin's Creed games later, because when I say today we're talking about Assassin's Creed, I not only mean today we are talking about the franchise, but also today we are talking about the flagship game in the franchise, also called Assassin's Creed. Yes, it's confusing. It's going to get more confusing. Deal with it. Um, my intention is to publish this both on the Professor Kozlowski podcast and also on Video Game Academy, because, you know, this should definitely count as a Video Game Academy thing. But I should also stress that this is not Video Game Academy's usual approach to things. Um, like, I've done a lot of weird stuff for Video Game Academy, and we've kind of experimented with a lot of different formats, especially as we've kind of come to realize that I can't do things the way that we used to do them, just because my schedule and the deep reading is kind of exhausting. Um, but on the other hand, like, I do in fact still want to talk about video games, and Video Game Academy is typically where I do that, so hooray, this is going to be both things. Um, I should also stress, this is not the ideal form of this particular rant slash conversation. Um, originally I kind of wanted to write an essay and, and do the whole, like, long-form essay treatment, but honestly, that is more work and takes more time than just me just blatantly ranting into a microphone for an hour and a half or whatever it'll turn out to be. Um, and while, on the other hand, this would actually make a lot of sense as, you know, a YouTube video where I could, like, show footage and, you know, actually demonstrate what I'm talking about as we're talking about it, that, too, is a lot of work. Um, like, as much as I was able to get the first hour at one point down to, like, a three-hour or four-hour prep time, it was still a lot of time, a lot of work, and honestly was more exhausting than I was able to handle. So, again, this is not the ideal form of this discussion, but it is the form I have the time to do at this particular point in time. It's August, and I am staring up the barrel of a lot of class preparations, 
I have a lot of work to do between now and September, just getting my classes ready, and already students are emailing me about, you know, can I in fact sneak into this class, or, you know, what textbooks do I need, and all the usual student stuff. Um, so the fact of the matter is, I do not have the time to do this the way that I wanted to do it, to do it the right way. Maybe one day in the future, I'll formalize this, turn it into an essay, or turn it into a YouTube video, or, you know, get some footage the next time I play through Assassin's Creed, um, whatever. For now, the real motivation for this is, I've been playing Assassin's Creed for several months now. Probably close to eight or nine months. Like, I played a level or an assassination or two, and then I got away from it. And then I played another one, and I got away from it. And then this summer, I finally, like, over the last couple of weeks, have actually been playing it in a fairly dedicated way. Got the last half of the game knocked out, because I actually have time. Um, and I beat it. And I want to move on to the second one. And, in fact, I have moved on to the second one. And I want to go through the series because there are actually a lot of games in the series that I haven't played at this point. Um, and in part, this is because every time I teach a mythology class, some student inevitably comes to me and says, Hey, have you played Assassin's Creed Odyssey? To which I respond, No, I heard that game was terrible. And they're like, but it's kind of important to the thing that you're talking about, and this is kind of my student's primary reference point in many cases to mythology. So we're working our way there. Um... But that's, like, Assassin's Creed 9, I guess. Like, if Unity is 5 and Syndicate is 6, then I, I guess it's 8, technically. Like, Valhalla would then be 9. I don't know. Nobody knows. This franchise is so messed up, we're going to talk about it. I'm so excited. Um, but nonetheless, what this kind of comes down to is I do, in fact, want to play Odyssey at one point. And it makes sense to me to, you know, play the rest of the franchise while I'm at it, because I enjoy playing these games. They do, in fact, relax me. And I did, at some point, want to record my long-form ranting about the series, so why not do it all at the same time? Um, since this summer, I did, in fact, actually finish Assassin's Creed the first. Um, because, again, I had been playing it because it was relaxing, because I liked sort of falling into that world and getting involved and, you know, just walking around random, you know, reimaginations of medieval-slash-modern cities. Um, okay, I guess now is the time to do this. Like, again, as slapdash and messy and ugly as this will prove to be, we're gonna do this. We're gonna talk about Assassin's Creed. Um, now, you might expect me to then go on to say, because I'm a professor, I'm going to talk about the historical accuracy, but I'm not. Like, we'll probably touch on it, it will definitely be relevant to our conversation, but we're going to approach Assassin's Creed more from our literary criticism perspective. Um, like, we're going to talk about them as games. Um, the fact of the matter is, the Assassin's Creed franchise is so weird. Um, it's huge. Like, it's one of the biggest and most widely selling video game franchises in the history of the medium. Um, it's got, like I said, something like eight mainstream entries, if you count them one at a time, like counting Assassin's Creed 2 is 2, and Assassin's Creed 3 is 3, and so on and so forth. Like, every time they change times or, lo or major locations, we are going to give it a new number. But that doesn't include all the Chronicles games, and, like, the, the one-offs and the spin-offs, and the... I don't even know. Like, this franchise is so freaking messy at this point, I'm not sure 
anybody can give it true justice on that on that uh, speed. Likewise, like I've always kind of wanted to look at the franchise as a franchise to talk about the way that it's changed and matured and grown and misstepped. Um, it's actually kind of fascinating, which is even more weird given the fact that the Assassin's Creed franchise is kind of the poster child for lazy game design, bad choices, and sort of tedious, boring sandbox mechanics. Like, I... There's so much going on here, and so much to take apart, and so much to talk about. And the fact that it is, in fact, rooted in history is part of the reason why I return to it so frequently, why I love this franchise as much as I do, but also kind of not terribly relevant, compared, at least by the you know appreciation of most gamers. Most of the people who play the Assassin's Creed franchise are only meh interested in the historical background like it's a nice touch but what really strikes me is this has kind of become the franchise that gamers point to when they talk about lazy design and you know cheap shorthand and just like sandbox games for the sake of sandbox games but at the same time there's so much work and there's so much dedication to the actual historical accuracy and fidelity and sort of like making this an immersive place where you can get lost in the city streets of Venice or, you know, in the backwoods of like revolutionary America or on the high seas of the golden age of piracy. Like that's an incredible achievement. And it is like routinely in an incredible achievement. For a while there, it was like every year Ubisoft released another one of these games. They're doing it again now, and they have this enormous team with enormous resources dedicated to doing this, and then like a couple years ago when Notre Dame burned, everyone was like, wait, Assassin's Creed has the best 3D model of this building that exists. Like, this is a work of scholarship. And it's like everybody just woke up and figured that out. Um, so again, this franchise is fascinating. And, you know, it's also been incredibly frustrating to me. Like, again, I should stress, this franchise is also really close to me personally. Um, back in 2008, I think... Um, that was when I graduated from college, and I got my first, like, real job, i.e. I was a substitute teacher at my former high school. Um, it paid, eh, for 2009. It certainly wasn't, you know, some high-paying career-loaded track or anything. I had aspirations for the future. I was hoping to go back to school and all that. Um, but I was a substitute teacher, and it was a crap job, and it was incredibly stressful, and I didn't get paid a whole lot of money, but I did, in fact, have disposable income. I was still living with my parents at that point in time. Um, I had been playing video games for a long time, but I've never really sort of, like, plugged in seriously to the whole community. And at that point, the community was just starting to become a thing, so far as I could tell. Like, I had never been, you know, a deep user of the internet up until that point. Like, I had played video games online. Um, I was a devoted fan of Age of Empires. You know, the theme here of historically-based games becoming very big in my life. Um, but at the same time, like in college, I hadn't really spent a whole lot of time playing video games. It was a pastime. That was it. 
the idea that this could be a community, a place where I could like interact with other people and, and you know, sort of see like discussion that was going on around it, much as, you know, channels like Nostalgia Critic and Angry Video Game Nerd were, were kind of like hanging out in those waters at that point. Really, for me, Assassin's Creed and importantly, Zero Punctuation being a thing roughly around the same time in like 2008, 2009 was kind of a big deal for me. It was when I started going on the internet for information about my favorite video game franchises and starting to learn more about them. Assassin's Creed 2 was one of the first non-Nintendo games that I got legitimately hyped for. Um, and as a consequence, like, when I graduated from, high, from college, and I actually said to myself, hey, you know, it's been great continuously playing all of my GameCube games and now my Wii games over and over again, but I think it's time I finally got myself a grown-up console and a grown-up computer that can actually play, like, the hardcore, you know, gamer games that have been going on uh, for a while now. I actually invested in a PS3. Like, I should stress... This was a big deal back in 2008, 2009. Like, in October of 2008, when I actually forked over the $300-plus to buy myself an actual honest-to-God PS3, like, this was one of the biggest purchase purchases I had made in my life up until this point. Like, I had the disposable income to do this. I had the disposable income to support a gaming habit. I joined Gamefly, which was basically Netflix for video games back in 2008 and 2009, so I was getting, like, PS3 games and Wii games and so on, like, shipped to my door, mailed to me on a regular basis. Like, I know that a lot of my audience is probably considerably younger than I am, so they do not remember all of these milestones or even are able to imagine a world where, like, you would tell somebody to mail you a video game, they would mail it to you, and you would mail it back, or just buy it if that was, you know, your thing. Um, and it, I should stress, like, this entire world was how I became an honest-to-God video gamer, how this went from being something that I did in my spare time totally in isolation to a community that I got plugged into and, you know, the resident expert on what people are saying about video games at Video Game Academy. Like, this was an important moment in my whole development. Like, again, I was working at a dead-end job. I didn't have any prospects for the future. The way that I kept myself going was I would come home and play video games and read about video games and get excited about video games and all of that sort of thing. So, you know, as much as, like, a lot of uh, the other folks on this site, especially Wes and Steve, get connected to video games in childhood, have this, like, deep-rooted nostalgia for, you know, Earthbound and SNES titles and, like, Mario, Super Mario Brothers 3. And as much as I do have a deep connection, especially the N64 games, because that was my first console in any real sense, this was the moment where I went, where I kind of figured out how to become an adult gamer, what it was going to look like for me to play video games as a grown-up, and a sort of recognition that, no, this was going to be serious for me. This was not just going to be this childhood pastime that I was going to grow out of. No, I was going to, like, really commit to this. And when I bought that PS3, I bought it with, I believe, three games initially. I bought it with Metal Gear Solid 4 because that was the hot shit new game of the year that everybody was excited about and had the hottest, most awesome graphics and like everybody was really impressed by it. Um, and I bought it with Assassin's Creed. Like, 
Metal Gear Solid 4 was game number one, Assassin's Creed was game number two, and then I bought Oblivion because, I don't know, it was the only way to get like the, ex the expansions for me at that time, and Oblivion was not running on my laptop. I also have a deep and, like, deep-rooted connection to the Elder Scrolls series. We'll talk about it sometime, probably, but for now, Assassin's Creed was game number two. It was a game that I had played before with friends, gotten excited about it, thought it was really cool, was keen to use it as a sort of benchmark for this really awesome new console that I was buying. It was, in short, the hottest game I wanted in 2008. So, again, this game has a lot of sort of expectations for me. It has a lot of sort of personal connection for me. This was really formative. And I have been following the franchise since, in some respect. Like, I jumped on the Assassin's Creed bandwagon a little late. You know, Assassin's Creed came out in 2007, one year after the PS3 itself did. Um, and then, you know, I bought it a year after that, and in time to get excited about Assassin's Creed 2 coming out the year following, in 2009. Um, and I should also stress, like, this whole franchise has been ridiculously uneven. You know, as much as, like, the general story of the Assassin's Creed franchise is, you know, Ubisoft has been milking this cow for decades and it just won't die, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of uneven quality games in this franchise. There's a lot of ups and downs in what has happened from game to game. Like, as much as everybody kind of, like, buys an Assassin's Creed and they're like, oh, I know exactly what I'm getting, it's yet another Assassin's Creed, as much as reviewers and stuff basically dismiss them out of hand as being just another version of the same game we've been playing for, you know, 15 years at this point, because it's been 15 years since 2007, the fact is, no, <laughs> that's not the case at all. Like, I'm not nitpicking to say that there's a huge difference between Assassin's Creed the first and Assassin's Creed 2, and then from 2 to 3, 3 to 4, 4 to 5, and so on. Um, some of those differences are kind of, you know, gradual and incremental. Some of those differences are dynamic and outstanding. Some of those differences caused huge, like, sensations at the time or huge critical paddling sessions at the time. And oftentimes the same exact things that made people angry about the franchise were the things that I ended up really liking about it. Um, so, again, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, and I'm going to be using as my kind of critical metric, I'm going to also be roping in the discussion of zero punctuation. Because again, like, just as Assassin's Creed was like the second serious hardcore gamer game that I bought with my fancy PS3, so Assassin's Creed is one of the earliest games that Zero Punctuation reviewed, and Yahtzee has been pretty fastidiously reviewing them as they've come out, except when, again, he gets impatient and doesn't want to deal with this franchise that's been around forever. Um, so when I talk about, like, the critical scholarship, I'm kind of using a combination of, like, metascore aggregation and, you know, discussion about the games that I've sort of bled into my consciousness as I've been following all this. But when I quote people, it's probably going to be Yahtzee. Um, this is an opportunity for me to talk about not just Assassin's Creed the game or Assassin's Creed the game franchise, but an opportunity to talk about the way that the entire gaming business has changed in 15 years. Because Assassin's Creed is a surprisingly good metric for that. 
Um, and to talk about that, you talk about the critical world, you talk about the apparatus, you talk about all this discussion going around it. Yahtzee's usually a pretty good way to gauge what people don't like about any particular moment in gaming. He's not necessarily the best reviewer or the more accurate, most accurate reviewer. I frequently disagree with him. We'll talk about it. But nonetheless, if you want a barometer for what people are angry about at this particular moment in time, what game trends are good versus bad, Yahtzee is a pretty good indicator. Um, so, all that aside, that's why we're talking about Assassin's Creed. And again... Maybe we'll do more of these. We'll probably end up doing this when I beat Assassin's Creed 2 again, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Once the semester starts, though, I'll probably slow down my gaming a lot, especially since that'll also be the time when we hit the relatively lackluster entries in the series, like Brotherhood and Revelations. Again, I am offering no promises here. It is my hope that I'm going to make it all the way to Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It is my hope that I'll be able to record stuff about virtually every game in the series, although I totally, like, reserve the right to skip stuff. Like, I'm probably not going to do the Assassin's Creed Chronicles games. I'm probably not going to do, like, the Altair story or whatever it is. I'm probably going to stick to the mainline numbered games or the games that do, in fact, jump from place to place, time to time. Um, we'll follow the main thrust of the series. I have high hopes that once we get to the stuff that I have on PC, i.e. everything after Assassin's Creed 4, um, I'll probably do this as a video instead of as a podcast. But again, that's so far in the future, I don't even know what's going to be happening at that point. So again, no promises. All I can promise is today we're going to talk about Assassin's Creed. And I hope that in the future we'll be able to talk about Assassin's Creed some more. Deal? I assume that you're all saying deal. Um, so let's start with game number one, Assassin's Creed the first, all the way back in 2007, like even before my first experience with it or, the, you know, my engagement with it, whatever. Back in 2007, again, the PS3 has just come out. Um, this is literally year two of the PS3, the Xbox 360, like this is several years, I think, of the Wii at this point. I don't remember exactly what Nintendo is doing. Um, but we should definitely stress that the Nintendo world of games exists in a completely different sphere at this point, and has for some time now. Um, back in the generation before, I'm not going to try and number generations, that's always kind of seemed silly to me, um, but back in the PS2, Xbox, and GameCube generation, like, the GameCube had radically different hardware specifications and radically different goals as a video game console, and Nintendo very much sort of stopped being a competitor to the PS2 and to the Xbox and started kind of doing their own thing, which was, if anything, even more exacerbated by the Wii. So we're not going to talk about Nintendo very much. Like, the first Assassin's Creed game on a Nintendo console, if I am not mistaken, was now that they've ported Assassin's Creed 1 and the Ezio saga to the Switch, like, recently. Um, so, you know, again... They're not even going to enter this conversation. Um, as far as I'm concerned, in 2007, and this was the way that the discourse surrounding the console wars tended to go back in 2007, 
There was Nintendo as its own thing, doing its own thing, making its own games, usually not even being able to port games back and forth from, like, Wii to PlayStation 3 or Xbox 360 because, again, the control scheme and the hardware were so radically different. Like, maybe the best example of this is, like, when Star Wars The Force Unleashed, like, the biggest Star Wars release ever in 2000 and whatever it was, came out, like, they literally did port it to the Wii as a radically different game with completely different controls and a completely different story. Like, the same name, but that was all that was in common between the PS3 and Xbox 360 version, which was roughly the same, and the Wii version. Fun fact, I kind of love both versions, and I do in fact own a copy of Force Unleashed for the Wii because it is just so cathartic to, like, use the motion controls to beat the crap out of people. But that's another conversation for another day. The Xbox and the 360 were the two major hardcore gaming consoles at this point in time. Like, yes, there were also PC gamers, and Assassin's Creed did release for PC, and most of the games we're going to talk about released for PS for PC. But this, at the time, I did not own a high like ranking PC, and it took me a while to actually assemble mine. So again, Assassin's Creed has always been played on PlayStation 3 for me. Uh, until, in fact, Unity, and I didn't want to get a PS4, and that's a whole other conversation. We'll get there. Um, so PS3, Xbox 360, these are our major competitors. This is what hardcore gaming looks like in 2007-2008. Ubisoft is having a weird day, though. Like, we usually talk about Ubisoft now as being one of the major, major big deal game companies. Like... As far as Western gaming is concerned, it's like you've got your Microsoft, you've got your Bethesda, you've got your Ubisoft, and like nobody else can compete. Um, back in 2007, this was not the case. Ubisoft was hanging on by a thread. Like, I remember watching the E3s around this time, and Ubisoft would deliver their whole spiel... And, like, usually the games that Ubisoft was releasing at that time, the games that they were the most excited about, had less to do with their big budget titles and more to do with just, like, releasing every possible game for teens and tweens on the Switch, or not on the Switch, on the DS. Um, and, like, that was what they were what they were thrilled about. Yes, they would make a couple of big budget releases, but they were not pumping them out, like, every year the way that they are now. Um, at this point, Ubisoft did, had, did have, like, th two decently long-running franchises, but neither of them were terribly well-weathered at this point. On the one hand, they did have Far Cry. Um, Far Cry 2 had come out a couple of years ago and kind of gotten some pretty wildly mixed reviews because it was really weird. Like, Far Cry 1 was kind of a cult classic in its own right. I remember people getting really excited about Far Cry 1, though a lot of people missed it. Far Cry 2 came out and everybody was talking about it, but it wasn't necessarily great talk. And honestly, if I'm not mistaken, that was after Assassin's Creed. So... What I'm saying here is that the big-budget franchise that Ubisoft had basically all their chips on was Prince of Persia. Like, they haven't released a Prince of Persia game in over a decade now, if I'm not mistaken. So this is definitely news to a lot of you, I'll suspect. But seriously, like, the biggest game that Ubisoft had made at this point in time, the one that had the biggest critical success and was, like, their big darling in the stable, was Prince of Persia The Sands of Time. Like, everybody loved that game. And for good reason. It's awesome. Um, 
And they kept re releasing sequels like Warrior Within and The Two Thrones and couldn't get that lightning in a bottle because they just were totally different. Like, they're both fun in their own right, don't get me wrong, but they are way different and miss a lot of what makes Prince of Persia The Sands of Time awesome. So Ubisoft is trying desperately to resurrect the interest in this franchise. Like, get that lightning to strike one more time. And because they're in this ugly situation, they're getting experimental, which is why you have something like Far Cry 2, which is totally different from Far Cry 1, and has, if anything, a hostile attitude to, you know, the people who are playing it. Assassin's Creed was originally intended as a Prince of Persia game. Um, the idea was, we're going to do Prince of Persia, but we're going to, like, not give the prince, a, you know, his royal situation from the start. Like, he's not familiar with the area. He's going to have to work his way up. And eventually, like, it metamorphosed as, you know, the developers were sort of looking around at the history of, you know, the Arabic world. They're like, hey, wait, what about these assassins? These guys are really cool. What if instead of having a prince who was, like, born into the royal family, he started as an assassin and had to work his way up to fame and honor? Um, and the bigwigs at Ubisoft were like, uh, no, we, we can't do a Prince of Persia game where there's no Prince of Persia. Like, people are going to hate that. So instead, the plan kind of bisected. There was a plan to make a new Prince of Persia game, which was confusingly called Prince of Persia, and kind of and wound up being kind of weird and gross and messy and kind of underappreciated, but also justly not appreciated as much as the sands of time. That was not the lightning in a the bottle they were looking for. And on the other hand, we got this new game. This game that was apparently about assassins and apparently about, you know, the Arabic world in the same way that the Prince of Persia games were about the Arabic world, but definitely taking a new direction. And what I want to emphasize about Assassin's Creed is, on the one hand, that might be its inception, that might be its, like, origin story, but the thing that came out of it is radically different for Ubisoft. This was a huge swing for them. Um, because this game looks way different from anything that Ubisoft has produced before. This was, in a lot of ways, the first open-world game to define what open-world games were going to look like in the future. Like, nowadays we are inundated with these things, not just because of the Ubisoft franchises, Far Cry and Watch Dogs and, and Assassin's Creed, or, you know, the Saints Row games on the other side, or, you know, the Grand Theft Auto games. And yes, I should stress, Grand Theft Auto was definitely there first, definitely had the model first, and Assassin's Creed is very much ripping off the GTA, at this point, 3 model, um, as it's perfected in Vice City and San Andreas. But Assassin's Creed was also riffing off the sort of, like, uncharted, you know, climbing things, Tomb Raider kind of model, which had yet to really kind of, like, come into its own as well. This is an idea for a game that has kind of been tinkered with for a while and would develop and get more polished later as things went on. But for Ubisoft at that particular time, for them to invest as much time and energy into a new IP set in a, you know, historically accurate-ish world of the Crusades, using this kind of technology and this much processing power was kind of shocking. Like, nobody saw this one coming. It just showed up and kind of blew everybody's mind, and that was the story of the original Assassin's Creed. 
So let's talk about what the deal is here, what Assassin's Creed actually turned out to be after its many years of inception and its gradual move away from that original Prince of Persia archetype. So the thing that makes a Prince of Persia game is wall climbing. Like, that's the thing. Um, back in the original Jordan Mechner game, it's all about, like, death traps and, you know, platforming and stuff like that. Ubisoft is like, okay, how do we make that relevant in, you know, the PS2 generation? And they give us Sands of Time. So we're going to do platforming, but we're not going to do, like, the Mario jumping from space to space platforming. No, we're going to run across walls, and we're going to avoid death traps, and we're going to have, like, pitfalls, and we're going to have combat, all that stuff. That's what makes it, you know, platforming for grown-ups. Hooray! Now, a lot of those mechanics, the wall running and trying to, like, get up to high places, that is very much at the core of what Assassin's Creed is. But what Assassin's Creed does differently is we're going to take out all of those carefully designed linear corridors that were so much a part of the Prince of Persia franchise, and we're going to place, replace it with a wide-open world. Like, huge. Like, unprecedentedly huge at this point in time. Like, go back and play GTA 3 and its various successors sometime, and you will see nothing that approaches the sort of scope that we're dealing with here. Yes, in GTA 3 there's this huge city that you, that you interact with, but you are encouraged to interact with it mostly at the ground level. You are not going to be, like very much urged by the game to climb tall buildings and get epic vistas and, you know, have it all rendered in 3D, like, all at the same time, all with in-engine graphics. That's an Ubisoft thing. And it blew my friggin' mind when this happened. Like, this is why Assassin's Creed was on the list with, you know, like, Metal Gear Solid 4 as, like, the game I really wanted to show off the PS3's hardware and to sort of, like charge into the new world of graphics-intensive hardcore gaming. It looks really awesome, in short. Like, even now, playing it 15 years after the fact, I still enjoy just climbing to the top of a tower in the original Assassin's Creed and letting the little rotational synchronize cinematic play out and seeing just how big these cities actually are. Um, I like walking around in the crowds, and that is another thing that is very much new to this franchise. Like, Grand Theft Auto did crowds, kind of, like there were passers-by, they'd walk along the street, obviously, they really just functioned as obstacles, and, you know, people who you could theoretically beat up and pickpocket or, like, kill or whatever, run, run them over with their car, you know, they didn't function like people tend to function. Um, they were just objects in a world. But Assassin's Creed was very interested in its crowds. The crowd mechanic were, was, in fact, a core idea to the shift game. Like, the two major pillars of Assassin's Creed setting itself apart from everything else that existed as far as open world games or as far as, like, you know, games that encouraged you to interact with your environment was we got realistic crowds that behave like crowds, um, and using these crowds is an important part of the way that you interact with the game. Like, you're going to hide in the crowds, and you're going to have to run away, and, like, the crowds will get in your way, or the crowds will, like, push you around, um, or you'll use the crowds to evade, like, pursuers or so on and so forth. Um, and the second big idea here was big, big friggin' open world that you're going to be climbing all over. 
Like, this is not GTA where, you know, you stay on the ground level and you drive around between the buildings. No, the buildings are traversable. You're going to climb up the buildings. You're going to climb down the buildings. You're going to jump from rooftop to rooftop. You're going to jump off of buildings. And importantly, there are going to be places where you can jump off of buildings safely. And that's going to be a core mechanic in the game. Like, Leap of Faith is, you know, something that was trademarked by, you know, Ubisoft for the release of this game. Like, we're going to have you go on a really high tower, jump off, and like, crazily careen down into a haystack where you will safely emerge and be totally fine. Um, this is what Assassin's Creed shows off. This is what, like, you're encouraged to do, what is, like, the core of the tutorial and the first, like, hour of gameplay. This is what the game wants you to see and wants you to notice. This is the pitch. We are going to do, in a Prince of Persia-esque setting, this game about wall running and climbing and you know, interacting with crowds, and ultimately building up to, of course, the assassinations. Like, that's kind of the third pillar of the pitch here. Big open world that you're going to traverse and climb in some new and exciting ways. Crowds that you have to interact with and navigate in order to evade pursuers or stay out of the line of sight. And, of course, working your way up to doing assassination. So, the key here is that we're doing Prince of Persia, but we've got kind of a stealth flavor to it, and in a very open-world environment. Stealth, by its very nature, kind of requires you to be in touch with your environment, requires you to sort of notice, like, where you are, who's around you, what's going on at all times. But noticeably, like, stealth games, even in 2007, had a pretty wide variety for how stealth mechanics actually worked. You had your thief games where you were in, like, mansions and rooms, and you're going around, like, trying to explore as much of the space as possible and stealing everything that isn't nailed down, but, like, sneaking up behind guards and bopping them on the head. You've got your Hitman games where it's basically, like, a puzzle of where, you know, you can do the most effective assassination without, like, getting caught and, you know, using disguises to infiltrate areas that are guarded. Um, you've got the early Splinter Cell games, if I'm not mistaken. I figured they were a thing at this point in time which very much emphasized, you know, elements of both, where, you know, you're using the sort of, like, stealth mechanics of Thief to sort of interact with, you know, a navigable environment and in, in interior place, but also, you know, you're using a wide variety of different, like, tools and abilities that, you know, poor Geralt never had access to. Um, all this is kind of borrowed from without actually being committed to in Assassin's Creed. Because the point of the stealth in Assassin's Creed, rather than, you know, in Hitman or in Thief or so on and so forth, is that because you are engaged in assassination, it's inevitable that your stealth is going to break down. Like, somebody is going to die, and you're not going to be able to kill them without anybody noticing. So eventually, you're going to have to run. And this is another one of those things that Assassin's Creed very much, like, put at the front of its promotions, emphasized left and right. Like, as much fun as it is to sneak around and get close to your target and then finally assassinate them, or alternatively, to totally botch it and end up having to, like, you know, adapt on the fly, is the fact that you're going to have to run away. And Assassin's Creed is very much emphasizing we need running away to be fun. 
Like, this is a core mechanic of the game. It's something that everybody's going to be doing. It's going to be something that is, like, the high climactic point of a lot of what's going on here. We need running away to be fun. And so many of the game's mechanics are centered around running away. Like, you have gotten the attention of the guards, now you need to get away from them, how are you going to do that? Well, you can, like, sit on benches and blend into the environment that way, or you can, like, duck into these little, like, cloth-covered closets, or you can, like, hide in haystacks. Um, you need to, like, be able to double back around hairpin turns or use the narrow alleys. Like, that's how you're going to evade pursuit. Assassin's Creed wants you to get caught. Unlike many of the stealth games, like something like Dishonored, where it's like, okay, I got caught, so I'm going to, like, quick load to the, my last save, because it's like, why even bother continuing? No, there are no rewards for a totally stealthy assassination in Assassin's Creed. It is not possible in most of the levels. When you assassinate people, it is going to be public, there's going to be screaming, crowds are going to run away from wherever the, the body is lying, like... Guards are going to be all over you, and you need to escape them, and that's part of the fun. That is something we enjoy. And honestly, I'm not sure any other game franchise has ever done this successfully. Like, most other stealth games that I play, it's like, okay, I, you know, botched the stealth, and now it's not fun anymore. Assassin's Creed is like, okay, I botched the stealth, and now, now it's actually more fun than it was before. Um, now... I should also emphasize this open-world engine thing that is going on here is... I don't even know how they do it. Like, talk to an actual game designer, talk to an actual programmer, talk to an actual graphic designer. But I'm pretty sure what is going on here is that they're actually using some pretty clever, like, deceptive techniques to make the environment as, you know, awe-inspiringly gorgeous as it actually is. Um, like, as much as this is presented as realism, like, despite the digital filter and despite the fact that this is, you know, a very heavily fictionalized reimagining of these real-world places, it is meant to be immersive as realism. And the way that they kind of achieve this is every time you get up to high places or every time you are able to look out in the city, I'm pretty sure they, like, distort the distances to seem bigger and more impressive than they actually are, um, which on the one hand is really useful for making it look gorgeous, and on the other hand is really useful because it means you don't have to render the whole thing quite so accurately every time that somebody climbs up to a high place. Yes, you've got to, like, show me what around me is important and be able to, like, render, all right, this is a rooftop, this is something that allows me to connect from rooftop to rooftop, this is a haystack, this is, you know, a closet thingy, whatever. Um, you've got to be able to communicate to the player these important ideas, but being able to like actually present it in a full city that looks like a full city and extends to the horizon in every direction, that's pretty friggin' unprecedented, even by early PS3 standards. Like, nothing in the PS2 can do anything nearly this involved. Like, Silent Hill 2 was famous for not being able to render the whole city of Silent Hill and, like, having to use the fog to, you know, prevent the player from noticing that they couldn't see the buildings in the distance. Um, the PS3 basically did what Silent Hill wanted to do, show the whole city all at once, this huge, interactable environment that you were going to be bumping into. And dang if they didn't do this right. Like, to this day, part of the reason why I keep coming back to this franchise, why I get so worked up about Assassin's Creed, is because I really enjoy just walking around. 
Like, that's it. Like, there are definitely, you know, when I play Assassin's Creed, I will definitely spend a lot of that time doing assassinations and planning missions and doing the minigames and so on and so forth. But if you ask me, like, why am I playing this again? Why is this the fourth, fifth time that I'm playing the original Assassin's Creed? My answer is almost always going to be, I like walking around the cities. They feel right to me. Um, which is an impressive accomplishment. Like, and importantly, despite all of the, you know, flack that these games frequently receive, where else can you do that? Like, people say Assassin's Creed is very samey, all the games have the same mechanics, so on and so forth. Yeah, sure, but where else are you going to get the opportunity to walk around, I don't know, 12th century Holy Land, or 15th century Italy, or, you know, 18th century New York City, or... 19th century French Revolution Paris. Like, that's awesome. Nothing else on this planet offers that experience short of going to those places, walking around them, and doing so with a guide that tells you what was here, you know, hundreds of years ago. This is an impressive feat, not just of video game design, but of scholarship. Like, no, these places are not rendered realistically. No, the scale is not correct. No, you know, the street layouts are not what they were back in the 13th century or whatever. Um, most of the characters in Assassin's Creed are presented as though they are real people, but they're not. Like, that is one of the fictions that is employed here. We'll come back to that when we get to Assassin's Creed 2. Um, but suffice it to say, like, this works. And part of the reason why I loved this game so much when it first came out, and part of the reason why I got so excited about it, and why I got so excited about subsequent uh, editions, and, like sequels and stuff, is because it works. Because I want to hang out in those places. Because, you know, I spend as much time as I do now reading about medieval Europe, or about Renaissance Italy, or about, you know, any of these wondrous historical locations and times... And it's all purely a matter of my imagination. Um, like, I have to piece together what it would be like to be, you know, in the French Revolution based on accounts and novels and, you know, like, historical documents and so on and so forth. Assassin's Creed takes all that and processes it into an easily accessible environment that you can interact with. That's a heck of a thing. Um, that's quite an impressive achievement. And as much as, you know, scholarship has no truck with these games, except where, like, the occasional quasi-scholarly YouTuber or podcaster like me bumps into them and decides to, you know, talk about them as this intersection of the popular culture and the scholastic world, they're works of scholarship, I tend to think. Like, not on the level of, you know, somebody who is earnestly sifting through historical documents and coming to these conclusions about, like, what was the motivation for X, Y, and Z. Assassin's Creed takes way too many liberties for them to be taken as, you know, something that you'd cite in a paper. But as a sort of aggregation of all this information, a turning it into something that literally anyone can pick up and interact with, that's an impressive achievement. And it's rooted in some really good scholarship, despite all this. Like, as much as, you know, again, this game was originally meant to be a Prince of Persia game, which, you know, takes absolutely fantastic license with these things, 
The fact that they rooted it in a historically realistic environment, let you interact with famous historical figures like Richard III, um, had conversations about Saladin going on in the back alleys, as much as those are small touches, it kind of compelled this game to be something new, something different, something that hadn't really been done before. Like, for all of the video games about fantastic environments and science fiction worlds and, you know, all of the lovingly rendered worlds of, like, Ultima or the Elder Scrolls or, you know, The Legend of Zelda, a surprisingly little amount of effort had gone into, okay, let's do a particular historical period and do it right. Like, you've got your Three Kingdoms games, which are, again, riding that line between fantasy and, and reality, like actual history. You've got, you know, your occasional foray into, like, the medieval world or the ancient world, but it doesn't happen often, and it's usually framed as an educational game, which nobody wants. Um, but this was crossing that boundary. This was, okay, we can do both. And one of the things that really excited me about this franchise was the fact that it promised to do more. It offered to say, okay, let's do this again, but in a different time period, a different place. And again, that's really cool. Uh, but that's the pitch, and not necessarily what the actual game turns out to be. Um, the game itself was kind of indifferently received at the time. Or really not indifferently, that's the wrong way of putting it. It was complicated. Generally, again, like any game came out in 2007 and you would get all those mainstream magazines like PC Gamer or whatever, and they would just lavish positive reviews on it because, again, game reviews have never been terribly accurate. Like, it's a whole thing, we're not going to talk about it here. Um, but Assassin's Creed kind of received reviews that emphasized as much the negative qualities as the positive, a lot of people really didn't like this game for various reasons. And the reasons are pretty solid. Um, again, like, to quote Zero Punctuation here, to, like, emphasize the same things that Yahtzee does, you know, there was a lot of bad crap in this game. It was very repetitive. You had to do the same three missions, eavesdrop and interrogate and pickpocket, like, half a dozen times to get through the game. You had to walk all the way from, you know, Messiah, your home base, to, like, the, the exit of the, the whole, like, town in order to get to any of the assassination missions that you were going to do. Um, on the one hand, this game had these very bold, very crazy, wild ideas. It seems pretty clear, though, that they weren't quite sure how to implement them. They didn't know what to do with this. You know, Prince of Persia was very linear. There were certainly places that you could explore and find, you know, various swag or, you know, cool things to upgrade your character. But, like, we're talking about one clear main path with the occasional dead-end path next to it. Assassin's Creed is straight-up open world. And yet, most of the things that have defined open world games at this point, especially stuff like Grand Theft Auto, you can't do here. Like, there aren't car races, because there aren't cars. And you can't go around just on a shooting rampage, because there are no guns. Like, at one point they were even thinking, hey, we should do crossbows, and apparently they ruled it out, because, again, wouldn't have been something that actually exists in the time period that they were talking about. Historical accuracy actually got some, you know, major play on what the gameplay was going to be. But as a consequence, you've got some pretty severe limitations to what you can actually do. Um, 
And as a consequence, you're kind of stuck doing the same handful of things over and over again. Virtually every mission in the game is going to be either you're going to sit on a bench and eavesdrop, you're going to listen in on somebody having a conversation and then pickpocket one of them, you're going to like listen to somebody give you some spiel about you know what's going on in the world or why the person you're trying to assassinate is a terrible person and then beat them up and kill them and get some valuable intel about what their deal is or you're going to run around and collect some flags or you're going to assassinate people like that's it that's the sum total of the things that you do in assassin's creed as far as the game designers are concerned as far as scripted events are actually concerned so there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of irritation. Like, to sort of shake this up, the world has to be the primary thing that you interact with. So the world has to be interesting and engaging. Like, what makes, you know, this save the citizen from the guys who are going to, like, kill and or rape this person from the next mission where you are doing fundamentally the exact same thing is, okay, so how many guards are around? Okay, are there any other obstacles you have to deal with? Okay, what is the environment look like? Are there, you know, places that you can push people into and get them killed? Or, you know, are there other interactable objects or, or you know, things like that? That's what's going to switch it up. And to some degree it works... And to some degree it doesn't. Especially because Assassin's Creed's solution to, okay, how do we shake it up? How do we ramp up the difficulty? How do we make navigating this space more complicated as the game goes on? Their solution is, we're going to put in annoying people to frustrate the player and potentially reveal their location to nearby guards. I.e., we're going to include beggar women who are going to, like, dog your heels and demand money and ask you to feed their poor, sick, dying children. And we're going to put in lepers, question mark, and or drunks, depending on what city you're happening to be in, who are going to, like, get physically aggressive with you and push the player around for no good reason. And this stuff is obnoxious. Like, don't get me wrong, I get the reasoning, okay, we're making the game more difficult, you will find, you know, especially in particularly important missions and stuff, oh, suddenly there are a whole lot more beggar women, or suddenly there are a whole lot more lepers, um, and they, you know, are meant intentionally to make the level more difficult. Like, one of the things you notice in the end game of Assassin's Creed is when you're supposed to do interrogation missions, which involves, like, tailing this guy, punching him, and then, you know, getting into a fist fight, is that there are all these thugs around on the places where these guys walk. And thugs, upon seeing a fist fight, will immediately jump in and try and beat you up. So now you're not just fighting one random dude who is honestly pretty, you know, defenseless, but now you're fighting, like, six random dudes who are all trying to beat you up, and punching is really annoying in this game. Um... So this is kind of a solution, but it is really obnoxious, um, especially because there's no really good solution to these problems. Like, the beggar women are especially obnoxious because they literally come up to you, block your progress, hem you in, and they keep saying, you know, just give me a little money, sir, a little money. Like, my children are sick and dying, can't you give me a little bit of money? Don't walk away. Like... There's no money system in this game. Like, you cannot carry money. Like, this is not something you can ever do. There's no economy. There's no nothing. There's no way to deal with the beggar women. And if you, in fact, like, stab one, you know, kill them, get them out of your way, you're punished for it. Like, you lose health. Um, according to the framing device in the game, you know, when... Uh, 
Altair did not murder people, like murder random innocent civilians, so you desynchronize. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, likewise, any of the lepers or the drunks who will just, like, push you or, like, knock you around or something, you can't kill them either. They're also innocent. You can, in fact, get into a fistfight with them, which breaks your cover and causes everybody to immediately be attracted to you and is therefore usually more trouble than it's worth. You're just going to have to subject yourself to get beaten up by these people, punched around by them, which sucks. They're nothing, there's nothing positive about your interaction with these characters, which is made all the more painful when you realize that this is kind of a really terrible portrayal, especially of the lepers. Like, Yahtzee calls them lepers. They're not labeled as such in the game, so far as I can tell. They're presented as though they're legit crazy people. Um, and I'm not, you know, disparaging the mentally ill or anything here. I'm saying that this is presented as though mental illness was pure craziness. Like, they just gibber and, like, present themselves as purely stereotypical, like, Warner Brothers, Looney Tunes-style crazy people who have zero sense, zero logic to their actions. Their only goal in life is to track down the player and just knock him around. Like, they don't even knock around other citizens or civilians or something unless they, like, miss while lunging at the player. So this is a really problematic presentation of mental illness. Um, again, it's more acceptable with the drunks in Ocker. Like, alcohol is not forbidden to the Christian crusaders, although the, the Muslims uh, in the Muslim cities very much kind of swear it off. At least drinking in public is way socially unacceptable. That's the way the game presents it anyhow. So instead you just got crazy people who are messing you up all the time, and you are basically being trained to resent them in the course of this game. Which sucks. Um, so all of this means that there are a lot of bad decisions here. Bad decisions in the sense of, like, these were, you know, actively pernicious and making people into worse people or encouraging you to think like a terrible person, um, but also just, like, making the game less fun. And a lot of people picked up on this. Again, Yahtzee has a lot of complaints about these repetitive missions, the irritations, the obnoxious details that are sort of layered into the game to supposedly make it more difficult and actually make it really less fun. Um, now, about the framing device. So, we kind of have to talk about it. We keep bumping into it at this point in time. One of the other crazy things that, like, Ubisoft sort of created to make this all work, presumably because their game was not terribly stable, and you will notice a lot of glitches, just, like, not in-game glitches, but, like, actual glitches, like characters that just sort of pop up out of nowhere, or, you know, like environments that don't render until you're really close to them, things like that. This is all sort of explained as a diegetic part of the overall game with this framing device. Namely that you are not actually Altair, the 13th century assassin in the time of the Crusaders. You are actually Desmond Miles, like random schmo in 2007, 2008, who has been abducted by this potentially dubious corporation called Abstergo for reasons that only reveal themselves as the game progresses. Um, this is on the one hand kind of weird and sort of one of the major weaknesses in the game, but is also one of the most brilliant strokes of genius for making this game work that I can tend to think of. It explains why, you know, you have all the video game elements hanging around your 
again, 13th, 12th century crusader assassin walking around the streets of Jerusalem or Acre. Um, it explains why you have a health bar. It explains why you have a little, like, wheel with the various, you know, weapons and stuff that you can use. It explains why you've got, like, a mini-map at the bottom right corner of the screen. Like, you, like, Altair isn't seeing this stuff. You, Desmond Miles, in the 21st century, are using this stuff to process your memories. Um, and again, this is a mess. We'll talk about this in its own right when we get to the story. But suffice it to say, this is kind of inspired, kind of a great solution to a lot of problems, um, kind of, you know, explaining away all the game-over screens and all the, you know, like, warnings that video games use to express various parts of the environment to you. At the same time, it's also kind of bad, and their commitment to it frequently ends up causing them a lot of trouble, which, again, we'll get to. Um, now, I should also emphasize, though, that as much as, like, as much as the missions are repetitive, and as much as there's a lot of obnoxious stuff just littered around the environment to, to like, you know, make it more difficult to sort of, like, make the game change its, you know, formula from time to time, it's never bothered me all that much. Like, this is... This is something I'm willing to forgive, in most cases, in a way that many reviewers at the time just weren't. Like, most reviewers at the time came away from this game saying, Wow, this is gorgeous. This is very fresh. I feel very immersed. But at the same time, there's all of these obnoxious little details that I find incredibly frustrating. This was a game that reviewers generally wanted to like more than they did. Um, and it was something that they found frustrating. Like, even from its very inception, Assassin's Creed was this game that had incredible ambition and problematic execution on a number of levels. But where the game works, it works like crazy. The assassinations are tense and involved. The running away mechanics, like I stress, are really engaging and fun. Um, the whole business of just walking around in the city and climbing up towers and interacting with these environments is just rich and fulfilling and makes you feel like you're actually in this place, which is quite an accomplishment. But there's also something I feel like they just totally mixed at the time. Remember, Assassin's Creed is the first entry in this franchise. We don't know what we're doing yet. So, in many ways, a lot of the stuff that was kind of featured in this game was really just an experiment for later editions, for, you know, moving the IP forward, whatever the case may be. This is not an entrenched franchise. This is legitimately, you know, like Ubisoft's Hail Mary pass to try and save themselves from insolvency at this point in time. Like, they are working game to game here, we're just doing the best that we can trying to reestablish ourselves as one of the big players in the, you know, 2007 world of gaming. So, one of the things that they do that everybody misses, like, every time that I hear some review, every time I hear this conversation, it's, like, barely touched on, is what you're supposed to do for the assassinations. The actual design of the assassination missions I find fascinating, and something that isn't really repeated in future games, or at least not very often. 
See, all those annoying little side missions that we have to do in order to get to the big assassination missions, like there's literally this rep repetition because every time you get to some new city, like, okay, now we're in Jerusalem getting ready to assassinate somebody. Um, now I have to do three of those missions, either the eavesdrops or the, you know, the interrogations or the... Um, the, the pickpocket missions. Um, I have to do three of them before the game will allow me to do the assassination missions. The justification in game is that like Altair is you know disgraced in front of Al Mualim, his his boss, and has to like prove himself every time he comes to some new city. Um, and the theory here in game is that you are getting more information about the target, about the environment, about how to assassinate them effectively. Um, and the game tells you this. And you listen, and you do the things, because you have to do the things, and then most players will do their three and then call. Go back to the assassination mission, and then, you know, do the assassination mission. Like, go to the bureau, have the little dialogue conversation, and then, boof, you're off to kill somebody. Um, and importantly, the game kind of reinforces this style of gameplay. Like, you have to reveal the missions that you're going to actually, like, do you know, the assassination mission, or the interrogation missions, the eavesdropping missions, so on and so forth. You have to, like, climb up those big tall towers, synchronize with the environment, and then it will, will reveal on the mini-map what missions are available to you in that particular place. Were there not enough of them, then go up another tower and do it again. This is the model for Ubisoft sandbox games for decades to come, so it should sound pretty familiar. But importantly, what isn't familiar is... The, what you get when you, in fact, do these little missions. See, when the game says you're supposed to do the eavesdropping missions and the interrogation missions and the pickpocketing missions to get more information about your target and your environment, it's not actually lying to you. The fact is that just most people never actually check on what they've gotten. When you play Assassin's Creed, when the average person sits down to play Assassin's Creed, and the reason why it's so frustrating and so repetitive is because it doesn't feel like you're making progress. You're just following the icons around on a minimap. You have to go to Jerusalem for your next assassination mission, so you climb all the way down the mountain and you follow the little icon on the minimap until you get to the next area. And once you get to the kingdom or wherever, you navigate all of its winding little passageways and you ride your horse over various places, getting you know ambushed by guards and having to go slow when you want to go fast, so you can follow the icon to Jerusalem. And then when you get to Jerusalem, you're following the icon to the assassination bureau, and then you have to find the lookout towers, and then you're following the icons around until you get your three missions and you go back to the assassination bureau and then you find, follow the icon to the actual assassination mission where things trigger and you try and find a way to kill somebody. But that's not the way you're supposed to play it. Like, it's very obvious in the game's structure and the way that it's designed, even though it's not communicated terribly well, that you're supposed to actually pay attention to the things that people are saying and doing. Like, when you, in fact, complete a pickpocket mission, you get a thing. Like, you have to go to the memory log, and you have to open up the, the memories and see this little attachment document that's there, which shows you the map or, you know, the, the little detailed icons that show you what's going on. But they do show you. Um, and this is what they mean by planning. When you, in fact, like, pickpocket somebody or eavesdrop or interrogate somebody, you get this information, and then you can use that information to go to the place, because again, it's open world, and scout it out. 
you can find the ways in and out. You can look at the maps that they've given you of where the guards are positioned and plan how you're going to get from place to place without being noticed or killing as few guards as possible in order to cause the least disturbance possible. You can plan your route. And this is something kind of unique. Like, there are a lot of games out there that emphasize, you know, we're going to do stealth, but there's also going to be planning. Like, the original Thief has maps. You know, Hitman, at least in its modern incarnation, emphasizes replaying the mission over and over and over again so you gradually learn more and more about how to interact with the environment as you go. And honestly, the best model for this, besides the other Hitman games themselves, is Assassin's Creed. Like, Assassin's Creed doesn't tell you to trial and error your way through the environment. Assassin's Creed gives you a lot of information beforehand, or at least as much as you have the patience to get, and then invites you, okay, think through this. Like, there's one particular mission where you're assassinating this guy who's at this mental hospital, and he's walking through the halls, checking on his patients, who apparently he is conducting elaborate medical experiments on because he's a terrible person, go kill him. And one of the things that one of the people tell you, like when you were doing your prep for the mission, is that there is, in fact, a hole in the wall. Like there's all this scaffolding that's been erected, and you can get into the hospital, which is otherwise pretty securely guarded, through this hole. Or, more importantly for your purposes, you can escape through the hole. And there are some really nice hiding places on the other side of it, which you can use to evade pursuit. If you don't know that, trying to get around in that hospital sucks. But if you do, it makes the mission so much smoother. And most of the missions are designed this way. One of the later missions is even more important on that front. There's this whole thing where it's this guy who's burning all of the books, and you know you want to stop him because you've got to preserve history, and you know Templars are bad. Um, but when he leaves the place where you first interact with him, like you have to go to the place where he's burning the books first, and then he disappears, and you don't know where he's gone. And there are like eight locations around the area in I think it's a Jerusalem mission that you have to go to where he could be, and where you will try and assassinate. But the trick is, seven of them are fakes, and they're not actually him. If you've been doing your homework, though, if you did all the missions leading up to it, you were given information that successfully eliminates seven out of those eight locations, so you can go directly to the place where you know that he is and assassinate him on the first try. And then go home. That's what this game was really designed to be. And I stress that, you know, most players don't do this because I didn't do it. Like, the first two times I played through this game, I missed it. Totally. Like, I just went through the motions. Okay, I will do mission A, B, and C, go back, follow the little icon, and do the thing. I'm pretty sure Ubisoft picked up on this, because Assassin's Creed 2 does away with this mechanic entirely, and it's honestly a shame. Nothing else does this. Like... As much as there are some games that have experimented with similar planning mechanics, I don't think anyone has ever nailed it with the sort of robustness that we see here in Assassin's Creed 1. Like, this game is unique in that sense. Not just for its, you know, Crusades-era Holy Land environment, but because it was trying to do something, trying to get the player to interact with that environment on a really deep and meaningful level. Because Assassin's Creed frequently punishes you if you don't know what your environment looks like. If you are, in fact, doing little side assassination missions, 
you read it as annoying when you accidentally climb over a wall and bump into some Templar who immediately sees you, immediately reveals your identity, immediately tries to fight you, and ruins your whole mission. But what the designers at Ubisoft are trying to communicate is you should have scouted beforehand. You should have known that Templar was there and killed him before he ever spotted you and before you ever started this mission in the first place. Why are you supposed to know this information? Because we told you to. Because we told you to climb to the top of the high tower and explore the area. Because we've had you, like, walking through all these places, navigating around the incredibly pushy lepers or the incredibly annoying beggar women or whatever. And when you play Assassin's Creed long enough, you know, my third or fourth time through, you learn to anticipate these things. You learn to, like... Do sweeps of the area before engaging on some important mission. You learn to turn around and, like, walk back to the nearest bench you noted when you see some passel of guards walking through the city. You have to interact with it, in short. And this is really cool. Like, this is the thing that set Assassin's Creed apart from many of the other open-world games at the time. The environment was the thing that you were bumping into most. And that makes it immersive. That's why it feels so realistic. The world is something you're constantly interacting with. And if you don't, if you don't anticipate it, if you don't learn how the crowds move, if you don't see how you know, the guards behave, or you don't check around corners or in back alleys, you're not just going like, to miss the random junk to collect, but you're going to get yourself in trouble. Like, you're going to get screwed. This game wants you to be vigilant, wants you to plan, wants you to be careful, wants you to be in the mindset of an assassin. And this is kind of lost in future games, as I should emphasize. Like, we'll talk about where it comes back in and how it's sort of changed in future games, assuming we get to them. But this is, again, unique. It's not done anywhere else. The game actively wants you to learn the environment. And they do it in a couple of clumsy ways, again, more annoying than not in most cases. But when you're on the wavelength of the designers, you can sort of see what the plan was here, what this game was aspiring to be, and what could have been if they followed those ideas instead of throwing them out at the earliest opportunity. Now the second thing I want to talk about with Assassin's Creed, the first especially, is its story. Now, again, many people have kind of gotten grumpy about this one. Some people liked it. Some people didn't like it. I kind of loved it. Like, I definitely missed a lot of the story beats that we saw in Assassin's Creed the first when we went on to Assassin's Creed 2 II and 3 and so on and so forth. Even though, again, there are definitely some criticisms to be had there for me as well. First and foremost, again, and this is kind of impossible to miss, as Yahtzee emphasizes, when you in fact do an assassination mission, and you in fact kill somebody, you are treated to a long, like, monologue on the part of said stabbed person, which is surprisingly unrealistic for a game that emphasizes its immersion as much as it does, and emphasizes realism as much as it does. Like, as Yahtzee puts it, you're like trying to get this guy to shut up through this unskippable cutscene of him just, like, spouting off random philosophy at you while, you know, he's sitting there dying, and it's nerve-wracking and a little bit game-breaking, and I do not deny that at all. 
But at the same time, I find the discussions kind of fascinating for reasons that we'll talk about in a moment because it has more to do with like the game's philosophy and themes than it does with the actual like storytelling and story direction. Um, but again, the sort of pace of this story is you start each mission with a long philosophical speech from Al-Mualim revealing more of the elaborate conspiracy and mystery surrounding your involvement in these assassinations, and then you actually do the assassinations and you get to see a little bit more. You start to question. But that's kind of the point here. Like, each assassination causes Altair to question his convictions. Are these people really as bad as they seem? And over the course of the game, you'll notice each of your assassination targets gradually gets more and more sympathetic. The early assassination targets are terrible. Like, they murder people in broad daylight, there's the guy who invites all these people to a party and then, like, poisons them all. Like, they're awful, and you have no compunction about murdering the living daylights out of them. But by the end of the game, they're starting to talk to you, and you're starting to sympathize with them. You're recognizing that what they're doing is, in fact, noble, honorable. That they are consistently arguing for a world of peace. That despite the fact that they are willing to break a few eggs to get there, commit some murders, have a couple of extra executions, be especially brutal um, in sort of keeping the peace and, and like enforcing the laws... At the end of the day, their goal is world peace, with them at the top. And when Altair starts questioning Al-Mualim about this, the response from Al-Mualim is, yeah, they do want that. And we want that too. We both want that. The difference is with the means. They are willing to do things that we are not willing to do to get this goal where we are not. The assassins emphasize freedom and the individual, where the Templars emphasize group cohesion at any cost, including that of freedom, including that of knowledge and wisdom. Whatever it takes, that is how we will get the perfect utopian world that we are looking for. And this is kind of the fundamental central theme of the franchise, something that at its best, it will touch on and explore in great detail, and at its worst, it will just sort of stereotype and gloss over and, like, turn into something silly. But at the end of the day, that's what this game is about. Freedom versus order. The assassins typically representing freedom, the Templars typically representing order. Now, it's couched in this elaborate conspiracy. And this... I don't know. In the first game, I'm willing to totally excuse it. I don't have a problem with the big conspiracy theory nonsense in 2007's Assassin's Creed. Like, in 2008, it blew my mind. I thought it was really cool. Like, at no point was I drinking the alcohol and thinking that, like, all of this was true or anything. Um, at no point did I start, like, researching the Illuminati or the Knights Templar, although, honestly, now that I have done some research into the Knights Templar, I am... Honestly, very impressed with the way that, like, Assassin's Creed manages to discuss this particular conspiracy theory. Um, but suffice it to say, like, it's not the thing that I'm showing up for. And I think that Ubisoft thinks that it is. Um, when we are introduced to Desmond Miles and his abduction by Abstergo, like, 
This is absolutely paralleled with the gradual revelation of the Assassins versus Templars conflict as, you know, Altair discovers it um, under Al-Mualim's sort of leadership and, and tutelage. Um, and the story that kind of comes out of it is that, okay, so we got these two factions, the Assassins and the Templars. They've been fighting forever, like, for all remembered time. Both of them go back ages and are more than just their particular Crusader iterations, as far as we can tell. But even more importantly, there's, like, this thing, this device, this MacGuffin, this magical or like super scientific, you know, soft science artifact that allows you to control people, make them do what you want them to do. Um, here it is known as the Peace of Eden, or in some cases, the Apple. And in fact, Al-Mualim draws a parallel between like the Apple of Eden versus the Apple of the Hesperides and so on and so forth. Like, it's a whole thing, and it's... it's fine. Like, I'm not upset about it, but I'm not enthralled by it, and if anything, I'm a little annoyed by the conspiracy nonsense here. Like, okay, whatever. Um, as a device to make the plot work, it's doing its job here in Assassin's Creed 1. Um, but I'm not sold on it. Like, it's soft science-y, it's ancient aliens, chariot of the gods-y, and that, you know, it's been done, and it's been done better, and, you know, it's cool when it works, and here it's fine. Like, again, when I play Assassin's Creed, it's not to relive the epic battle between the Assassins and the Templars over the magical, supernatural pieces of Eden, and to discover the origins of the ancient conspiracy that... Like, no, no. I endure that, because I want to hang out in these places and be in this time period and engage with these, you know, environmental obstacles that the designers have concocted for me. Um... The conspiracy theory is not a selling point, by my reckoning. But it is important to the plot. It justifies the reason why the Assassins are fighting the Templars. It justifies Des Desmond's capture by the Templars in the 2000s by Abstergo. And it does set up a really cool reveal. Like, the story of the Assassin's Creed is, okay, so, you know, we're assassinating all these people to undermine the Templar hierarchy, but shock twist in the last act, turns out Al-Mualim has been manipulating you all along, he's actually on the side of the Templars, and his capture of the Peace of Eden really represents him turning on them and ultimately betraying them, and... <sighs> okay... Like, it's a lot, especially in the, like, last 30 minutes of the game. You know, you have successfully overcome all of these all of these assassination targets. You know, you fight, like, you know, the, the big baddie Robert de Sable in front of King Richard III himself after fighting through waves of crusaders. And you get to Al-Mualim, and you've got this, like, big fight where he uses the Peace of Eden and does all this really cool stuff. And that works. Like, that's really cool. I love the interactions between you and Malik, the guy who you totally screwed over and you got his brother killed and Malik finally joins you after seeing how much you've matured over this whole period of time. That stuff works like gangbusters. I love the characters. I love the character arcs. I love the sort of ramping up. Like, the combat's a little rough, especially towards the end, because the combat was never how you were supposed to play this game. It was always meant to be a little tedious to encourage you to run away, which is way more fun. Um, so the fact that it's like, okay, 
we got to do something big for the end. We don't really have bosses in this game, so I guess we'll just do a lot of fights against a lot of people. It's it's rough. Like the fighting is actually easy, which is weird for a game that has so much combat in it. Um, and it, again, we're back to that whole repetitive, irritating territory. If it isn't clear, I have a lot of ideas about this franchise, and they're very disorganized, and coming out rather disorganized. I apologize for that. Um, suffice it to say that you do, in fact, face off with Amalalim, and it is this climactic battle, like your wits against his, you know, trying to overcome his control, using your secret eagle vision power, which is definitely not terribly well explained, but doesn't have to be. Being mysterious is kind of awesome in this situation. And, like, you surprise him and take him off guard and you finally assassinate him and you get the last big philosophical speech and then BAM! Turns out there are pieces of Eden all over the place. What? And this is not the only one. What? And apparently all those like major religious events like miracles and stuff all due to the piece of Eden. Okay, fine. But it means that there's going to be more games. It means that there's going to be all almost unlimited potential for the Assassin's Creed franchise to explore all of these different times and places and keep tracking this huge involved conspiracy over literally millennia of human history. And when, in fact, you get to, like, the final revelation, like Desmond is, you know, dispatched back and you've got this, like, very ominous speech from the guy's mysterious conference room people who are like, ooh, it turns out that, like, we're going to need Desmond and, you know, we're gonna, like, go and fight the assassins and this is not over yet and there's definitely a sequel in the works. And then Desmond uses his eagle vision and it's like, what? There's all this evidence from the, per the former occupant of this room who has apparently dug up, like little glimpses of important historical details involved in this conspiracy all over history, and you're like, oh, crap, this is going to be awesome, and bam, roll credits. I friggin' lost my mind the first time I saw those credits roll. I was so psyched, so hyped, so excited. Like, yeah, not every part of that story lands for me. The conspiracy stuff, I don't really care about. But as an excuse to make tons of games about important historical moments, giving us the opportunity to explore historical cities from all around the world, all over the place, like, sign me the fuck up. Absolutely. Like, I was looking over that room again and again, trying to, like, decode what was happening. I think I actually did at one point, but it's all, like, very esoteric, like very new age sort of generic wisdom the occasional like everything is permitted line like i legitimately did this i spent hours in that final room decoding the stuff on the floor um and it can in fact be decoded it's just not terribly exciting <laughs> um but what's more like this was also rich to me philosophically like, again, I've kind of been deliberately avoiding the theming here, but it is, in fact, core to what this game is about. From start to finish, this is a game about complication, about the gray area between the apparent black and white morality. The fact that you're committing all these assassinations seems very clear, but the game is repeatedly informing you, no, it's not. You get into these conversations with these guys who you've assassinated, all those annoying, unskippable cutscenes that Yahtzee hated so much, and I am fascinated every time I listen to them. As we get these guys basically, you know, probing back and forth with Altair and essentially with Al-Mualim, arguing what is the right way to run society. And again, the assassins supposedly stand for freedom. They're 
big tagline here is everything is permitted, which, as you probably know, is a Fyodor Dostoevsky Brothers Karamazov thing. Like, it's kind of badly misused here, and I definitely raised my eyebrows at its use here. Um, but as a sort of stand-in for a philosophical position, that was kind of Dostoevsky's whole point in the first place. Ivan didn't believe that everything is permitted, but it was a whole perspective. It represented something, and it came to represent something more when, again, Sartre and the existentialists latch onto this as the foundation for their philosophy as well. This is actual philosophy that we're doing here. It admittedly is more lip service than actual investigation, but it's a good start. It's certainly a lot richer than I would expect from most video games, at least back in 2007. Um, what the, the sort of conflict that's being framed here, and ultimately the development of this story, sort of muddles it somewhat. But the idea that's sort of on display, the way that I remember it, the way that I sort of process this philosophical debate between the Assassins and the Templars, is that they both do have noble goals. The Templars are seeking peace, order, a paradise on earth, with them at the top using the pieces of Eden to rule society, using these supernatural devices. It is framed in the Crusades as these various powerful figures, you know, using their authority, misusing their authority to guarantee order, whether it is, again, through burning all of the books of uh, Damascus, I think it's Damascus, not Jerusalem, or, you know, staging, like, brutal executions to maintain order, that tracks. Like, that's a very Machiavellian approach, but with a very utopian end. These two ideas can coexist. And this ends justifies the means behavior is essentially saying at the end of the day that the assassins are deontologists where the Templars are utilitarians. The Templars are willing to pay any cost to get happiness, whereas the assassins are not willing to betray somebody's freedom unless they are already betraying the freedom of others. That's what is meant by that divide between the innocents and the guilty. That's why Altair spares the innocents and even goes so far as to spare the woman who sort of like disguises herself as Robert de Sable in one of the last missions rather than killing her just for associating with the Templars. There is a sense of justice here and a sense of measured justice at that, an attempt to find nuance between these two extremes of order and freedom. Because on the other hand, if Al-Mualim is in fact an assassin, and taken as an assassin, which is kind of hard to support given the end of the game, given the fact that he confesses that he betrayed the Templars and it's this whole thing, his taking the piece of Eden and using it for his own ends kind of also represents the extreme end of the assassin's perspective. Namely, if you take freedom to its logical endpoint, then you get to a place where you can't stop others, where you cannot fault others, where you cannot judge others. Al-Mualim asserts himself as the only authority through his freedom. He takes the moral authority to murder the people that he does, to dispatch Altair, to kill all of his former comrades, and then turn on Altair and murder him as well, because, again, everything is permitted. Why shouldn't he? 
what reason does he have not to now that we've thrown out the notion of gods and religion? And Mualim is not beating around the bush about this. Like he literally says at one point that all the religions are essentially pernicious, tools of control. You know, a very Marxist reading of religion, but again, a pretty robust philosophical one nonetheless. It's not, you know, the stuff that I would expect to read in 20th century philosophy. It doesn't show nearly the nuance of somebody like Habermas or even contemporary Marxists, but it's a start. This game is actually thinking about these things, is fairly richly engaged, both with the history of these ideas and with these ideas themselves. And if Assassin's Creed promised to, you know, explore all of these historical periods, explore all of these great, you know, cities and, you know, important places in the history of the world, undoubtedly, I thought, they were going to explore the ideas as well. They were going to track how this freedom versus order dichotomy manifested in all of these times and places. Which, again... I was positively psyched for. Like, you can't imagine how excited I was. Part of the reason why I got so worked up about Assassin's Creed for so long, why I would end up ranting about it in 2011 to whoever would listen to me back at Boston College, was because I had really high expectations for this franchise. It had given me a promise in the first Assassin's Creed. We want to make a video game that it involves historical accuracy, that is trying to represent an immersive, engaging world where you can actually interact with the figures, places, and, you know, environments of the past, as well as explore this idea as it travels through time. Yeah, we're going to use the fig leaf of this bullshit conspiracy theory to justify it, but really, at the end of the day, what we are interested in talking about is freedom and order how these two poles, these two fundamentally opposite ideas at the heart of every government structure have worked for 2,000 years and more, or at least 1,500, given the fact that apparently the Crusades are our starting point. And that's kind of what we got, and it's kind of not. From the very beginning, right from the time that I, you know, watched the end credits roll, I was thinking, I want more. I want to see Assassin's Creed and the French Revolution. That was the big one for me. Like, absolutely, no question, give me the French Revolution, Assassin's Creed. And they did! We'll talk about it. Maybe. Who knows if we get that far. Um, I wanted a Rus Russian Revolution, you know, Assassin's Creed. I wanted a Three Kingdoms Assassin's Creed. I wanted, you know, like, Roman Empire Assassin's Creed. Like, show me this. You have given me your word that we want to explore this stuff that we want to make a compelling video game franchise unlike any other that has this level of quality. And yeah, we're going to stumble across the way, and there's still a lot that we're working out in the design documents, and clearly a lot of our you know choices for this first game were kind of messy, but we're working on it. We're going to go bigger. We're going to go better. We're going to polish this up. We're going to explore these ideas. That's what I want. That's what I wanted Assassin's Creed 2 to be. I wanted Assassin's Creed 2 to learn from its mistakes, i.e. don't do repetitive missions, don't irritate the player unnecessarily, but keep the exciting, thrilling assassinations and escapes, keep the big philosophical ideas, you know, keep all that stuff that makes this game great. And they did, and they didn't. 
but we'll, again, talk about that in its own time. For now, that's where I want to kind of leave it. That's my sort of big picture, hour and a half rant take on the original Assassin's Creed. What this design document, this proof of concept would actually look like and turn out to be. This is what it promised, this is what I wanted, this is how it succeeded, and this is how it failed. Um, it is, to this day, I think, unique, even among Assassin's Creed games. Playing the original Assassin's Creed as frequently as I do is not just so I can play the rest of the franchise all the way through, much as that is the reason this time. I have frequently played it on its own just because I like this particular entry because I want to relive that moment of excitement, because I want to go through those mechanics of planning my assassinations, which again really isn't offered by many of the other entries in the franchise, because I want to see this elaborate philosophical dialogue play out between assassins and Templars, between utilitarians and deontologists, um, between freedom and order, largely writ, because I want to see all of this execution, even if it doesn't quite stick the landing, even if it would probably have been better for Al-Mualim to remain an assassin to the very end, rather than, you know, sort of feebly justify assassinating him and making him into the bad guy by turning him into a Templar at the end. Um, even if I do have to undergo a number of repetitive missions or frustrating little, you know, obnoxious details like the lepers being a terribly irresponsible representation of mental illness or, you know, the bigger women getting in my way and constantly frustrating me because there's literally no way to give them money. I would if I could, lady. Trust me. Um, that's why I keep coming back to it. And that's why I'm so passionate about this franchise. Um, in a sense, it's all because I still love the first game that much. And as much as the future games are only going to sort of like intermittently deliver on this fantasy. What fascinates me about them is that each one kind of recognizes the failings of the one that came before and overcorrects. Sometimes it gets what I'm looking for and sometimes it doesn't. It corrects some of the problems that I identified while totally failing to correct the others. Or making new mistakes in, in that process. This whole business, the Assassin's Creed franchise, is not the story of a franchise that has just, you know, stagnated for, um, for 15 years. This is the story of a franchise trying to make this work. Succeeding in some ways, failing in others. Trying to overcorrect and ultimately causing more problems. Introducing new concepts only to see whether they succeed or fail against the backdrop of everything else that's going on. This is a story of a franchise, and that means that it is messy. It is involved. It is detailed. It is nuanced. It is complicated. And until I see Noah Gervais do this entire thing, this is going to be the best version that I know of as far as trying to get at what the deal was here. So with that in mind, I bid you farewell. Do go back and play the original Assassin's Creed if you haven't. Like, just because the new games are new does not necessarily mean that they're better, or that they can even offer everything that the old games did in some cases. Hopefully we will talk about Assassin's Creed 2 in the next couple of weeks, um, as well as getting up all the other lectures that I promised, especially our uh, new series on Ray Bradbury, which will be coming soon. Thanks, patrons, for voting for that. Um, in any case, 
whether the next lecture turns out to be another Assassin's Creed entry or another or the first of our Bradbury entries, whatever. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.